Okay, where are we? Okay, so welcome to the Gentleman Medium podcast. And today I've got author Richard Kaczynski. Kaczynski, is that right? Who is the author of Perderabo, The Life of Aster Crowley, which is this wonderful book here, which everyone can see, which we're going to talk about. So Richard, um, Aster Crowley is obviously a, a passion of yours. And I believe this book took you 20 years to research and put together. Um, it, it had, um, or, or it did. And I should clarify, it wasn't 20 years of nonstop research. I mean, there was, there was a period of, of reading his works. There was a period of tracking down um, his, his, his non-published manuscripts, letters, diaries, and so on through various archives and visiting those and obtaining copies and writing the book and sending the manuscript out to different publishers and through queries and so on. So it was a journey of about 20 years from start to finish um, for, for it to actually get published and to see the light of day, which uh, is still a long time for the book. It's still a long time. So obviously the book's, the book's been out a while now, and I think this is actually, um, if I remember right, this is a revised edition, isn't it? This is a second, a second edition. So since this has come out, is, is there going to be another edition with more <laughs> stuff in it, or is that it? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. One thing that changed very much between the first and the second edition is that the, the birth of the online database, whether it be genealogy, newspapers, or other materials is becoming digitized, Google Books and things like that, um, as well as um, you know, subscriber-based databases, which were available to me through my academic affiliation. Um, so much more information is out there and, and findable about yeah the various people in Crowley's life, the reporting around the events in his life and so on, that I, I had this embarrassment of riches suddenly when they went to do the second edition. And not only did I go into it, you know, again, 10 years wiser um, from when I wrote the book originally, but also with this massive new information at my fingertips. So the, the second edition is very uh, much um, it, there was about 150 pages of additional material from the first wow. edition, as well as just swaths of the book were rewritten as well. Um, so, which would not be re reflected in the page length because I've kind of replaced a yeah. lot of things. Um, and and the, the exciting thing is there's new things being learned and discovered and turning up all the time. So. I have not had any kind of conversations with my publisher about a third edition, but I would <laughs> like to think at some point it would be it would be nice to just update it with just the latest and greatest. Um, you know, the difference between the first and the second edition is pretty um, immense in my, my mind. Um, yeah. and I don't know if there's quite as much to uh, update or revise, but there's still been um, enough enough things. And again, I'm I'm learning new things about Crowley and his time. Um, and his circle mm. all the time. And that's that's perhaps one of the hardest things about writing a biography is that you need to immerse yourself in, in that person's social circle and, and their yeah. time and place. And it's and you know, you never get that perfectly right. And the, no. again, that's something that you can compensate with over time and more learning. So it's it is a uh, yeah. long it's been a long journey and, and as you said, a passion of mine. 
Inter I mean, interesting. You know, I know we spoke before. You know, I think like you, I I was interested in him from about 13 years old. When I first heard about him when I was at secondary school, and for some reason, I was just fascinated by this guy. And I've spent, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old now, and I probably like you, I've, I've gone down lots of avenues trying to find out everything I can about him. You know, I'm trying to separate the sort of the man, the man from the myth. You know. Um, I mean, just for some people listening to this show, Perdurabo, where does that actually come from, that name Perdurabo? Um, that is a Latin word that means, or as Crowley interpreted, I, uh, I shall endure, I shall endure to the end. Yeah. It actually comes from a, a biblical passage um, referring to you know, the followers of Jesus. Crowley was raised in a very religious household, um, but when he kind of broke from that, and joined the secret society, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. As a new member, he was one of one of the things you do is you choose a motto representing yeah. your aspirations. And he kind of fell back to um, that that biblical phrase, that Latin word, perdurabo, um, to express his intention to endure to the end, to um, to to get to the end of this mystical journey that he had undertaken. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, I was just again, I've got a few notes here. One of the things I noticed here, and I think it was on page 47, you said he had an inner conflict over religion. Um, I think the title was A Place to Bury Strangers. Is that is that where you think this this sort of um myth come from about him being a Satanist and, and the wickedest man in the world, which obviously he wasn't, so I don't think, but um, perhaps you can enlighten us on that a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, again, as I mentioned, Crowley was raised in a very fundamentalist uh, faith. Uh, the the Plymouth Brethren, or or the Brethren, as they refer to themselves. Yeah. Um, but there was, it was very austere. Uh, you know, did not celebrate holidays. His his reading material was very circumscribed. And had to be approved. And when he came into his majority, he very much pushed back against that. And just discovered this whole other world which had been closed off to him before mm. and you know so in one of his works he said i did not i did not hate christ or christianity but the christ and christianity of the people that i hated because he found right. that religion could turn people into just horrible individuals um, <laughs> that inflicted a lot of uh you know pain and unhappiness um, on him, particularly through his uh, boarding school days. So uh, in, a lot of the rebellion that you see in Crowley is kind of pushing against this sort of, you know, toxic aspect yeah. of, of the faith that um, expressed itself in a lot of restrictive social values in his time that he was mm. very much fighting against. You know, he very much became the sort of libertine, um, and that that was shocking to the society around him and it was that more mm -hmm. than anything that led to these sorts of descriptions of him as the wickedest man in the world it's you know the cosmic yeah. scale of wickedness he you know he, he really uh, doesn't register you know <laughs> compared to you know <laughs> we've seen in the 20th century but um you know the fact that he was you know again thumbing his nose at you know victorian and edwardian mores yeah. and conventions um you know certainly put him at odds with you know the tabloids which you know which is where he yeah. got that name which is unfortunate really isn't it because i think you know in the, in the sort of general public's eye i know sometimes every so often his name crops up in the mainstream press and it's usually as the wickedest man in the world or arch satanist or whatever 
and I don't think most most people in the street have any idea of his the sort of the man he was. You know, the mountaineering, the chess playing, the poetry, and you know, all the all the other stuff. You know, the intellect he had, and everything else, and the and the people he mixed with. You know, as, as a human being. Yeah, and that was really yeah. kind of what inspired me to write this book in the first place. Is that having read his works and you know understood what he was saying from his own in his own words. I very much realized that much of what was written about him, the biographies that existed, were mm. really focusing on the the scurrilous and the scandalous sorts of yeah. details <laughs> and the gossip and the rumors. And yes, that that sells books, but it created this this myth that was really kind of a funhouse mirror of who Crowley really was. And mm. I very much wanted to write something that was a accurate and faithful portrayal of his life mm. and circumstances and beliefs um, and kind of avoid all of this sort of you know pot boiler stuff yeah well, i think you've done i think you, you know i think you've done a great job of that so i've already read it i'm going to read it again it's, it's such an interesting book you just read about his life you can really step back into it some of the things i noted that i'm interested in for my own personal interest um his association with L. Ron Hubbard, who obviously the find, founder of Scientology. So do you think Scientology was very much influenced by Crowley's thinking? Or was it, you know, uh, I've been a little bit in the book, I can't quite recall the hit what it was, what page it was on. I know you mentioned that's it right. in there. You know, that that's hard, hard to say, really, because you'd have to get into the mind of L. Ron Hubbard himself. Yeah, uh, I should clarify that Crowley and Hubbard never had any direct contact. That Hubbard Didn't was um, Hubbard was a friend and 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 um, know, a, a colleague of one of Crowley's students, um, Jack Parsons, the the rocket scientist. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Crowley actually thought that what Parsons and Hubbard were up to was very ill considered. Um, <laughs> so. You know, the, the extent to which Hubbard himself was really exposed to Crowley and Crowley's ideas is hard to gauge. And if, if he was, it would have been through his association with Jack Parsons rather than directly yeah. through Crowley himself. Um, mm. There is a, a, a book recently out through Scarlet Imprint Press um, by the title of Two Antichrists, which talks about Jack Parsons okay. and L. Ron Hubbard and tries to make the case that um, Hubbard took more inspiration from uh, Crowley's philosophy, or at least Crowley through the lens of Jack Parsons. Um, he again, took more inspiration that way than has previously been acknowledged. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know it's an interesting argument, but I'm I'm kind of on the fence. You know, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which Scientology is very very different, you know, from Crowley's philosophy as well. Yes. Yeah. So. That, that sort of brings on to my next question, really. And again, that was on it's on page 88, um, H. Spencer Lewis, and obviously Amok. And I, I asked for personal reasons, because I was actually in Amok for about nine years. I joined it many, many, again, it was one of these things when I was a schoolboy. I had the little book, The Mastery of Life, that you saw. Oh, yeah. And um, I was instantly attracted to it at the same time as I started reading about Crowley. And I didn't know until I read your book about the connections with this and about the OTO and, and everything else. Would you like to just sort of go into that a little bit? Yeah, so the, the the way this goes is one of the very early documents or foundational things from Amwork um, makes a reference to OTO or Ordo Templi Orientis. Yeah. And um, that is an organization that Crowley 
much later um, came to be the international head of. But at the time of this document, this was um, the organization had been started and was run by Father named Theodore Royce. And yeah, Royce was someone who tried to create a lot of um, alliances between different organizations. Basically, what he was trying to do was to create this um, this big umbrella of authority under which yeah. he could administer various um, rights, uh, not only of Freemasonry, but you know, like the Swedenborgian rites and the Rosicrucian oh, yeah. rites, yeah. you know, the Scientists Rosicrucian, and so on. Was that and he also swapped these dignities with other people, um, and. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, H. Spencer Lewis was one of those people who kind of fell into that his orbit of, um, you know, rec recognizing each other. You know, it's essentially. So was was that was that a still you say about Roos trying to sort of amalgamate these esoteric orders? Was that was that part of the FIDOSI? Was it FIDOSI? If you do USI, the Federation of Universal, I can't remember what it's called now. I, I'm sorry, can you? Can you uh, Repeat that again. Yeah, I there was an organization. I, I recall when I did some research a few years ago um, about um, AMOC and the various connections and charters, and there's always sort of debate who had a charter for this and who had a charter for that. And there was an organization called the FIDOSI, if you D O S I, it was trying to amalgamate all these esoteric orders, weren't they, in Belgium or France? Or was that? Was that I don't know if that was Roos or that was somebody else? I can't quite recall on my memories. Yeah, um, to be honest. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, there there's. There's all, you know, the world of Rosicrucianism, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, is kind of its own sort of torrid story um, between yeah. uh, Amork on the one hand and H. Spencer Lewis, and then you've got Pascal Beverly Randolph and Randolph, you know, yeah, Climber yeah. and and that and climate, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and then the various splinters and spin-offs from that, you know, so it's it's. Um, and interestingly, you know, you do see echoes of Royce and Crowley, well, more Royce, I suppose, showing up in these organizations. But uh, yeah, you know, not only do you have OTO showing up on this early Amwork document, but you also have, you know, R. Swinburne Clymer, who's descended yeah. from, you know, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who in addition to being a spiritualist and a Rosicrucian, but basically the founder of that organization, um, was also mm. a sex magician whose right. uh, mm. theories made their way into Order Templarientos. And so you've got this weird situation where, you know, Clymer, who, again, is, has descended in this, in this organization, descended from Randolph, is accusing you know, Amork of being allied with, you know, this black magician and, you know, sex magician, mm. Elster Crowley. And it's just this pot calling the kettle black sort of situation yeah. in the you know, 1930s, yeah. which is very, uh, very unusual. <laughs> no, I can, I can imagine. And I, and, and, and I don't know if I'm right on this. Um, did Crowley ever meet Pappas at all? Pappas, Gerald um, Enkass, or Enkass, I'm sure you pronounce his name. Um, it's it's not clear whether they ever met. It's it's it, it is known that his Crowley's predecessor Theodore Royce did know mm. uh, did know Enkos, but um, yeah, and and Crowley was certainly aware of him, but I I have not come across anything to suggest that they actually met. You know, it's, no, it's a small. Any, it's hard to imagine that they 
didn't. Yeah, this is what I wondered. I, I just wondered about obviously the magic the, on the magical side of it. Obviously, on, on the you know Gerald Incus and the, obviously Martinism, Louis Claude Saint Martin, and obviously the inner order of the Elu Cohens and stuff like that is very sort of a high magical order. I wondered, just wondered if any of that came over into sort of Crowley's life or vice versa. I'm not sure the time scale of it all actually, which, which would have been first. Would have been, I suppose it would have been Saint Martin, wouldn't it, first and stuff like that, and then Crowley afterwards. Yeah, there are very. There is, again, the, the, the idea is that September 1907-1908 uh, that Theodore Rice and, and Gerard Uncos got together and they, again, they swapped dignities in their respective organizations. And it's through that that Theodore Rice obtained some authority in things like Martinism and the Gnostic Church that Lapus mm -hmm. was part of. And likewise, Royce gave honors in OTO and his OTO affiliated, you know, Masonic sort of organizations to to Encausen in exchange. So mm -hmm. the, those sorts of any any authority the Crowley would have had in, in in that sort of French lineage would have come via Theodore Royce. Yeah. So obviously I'm sure many people have got, you know, Crowley's magical books, like magic in theory and practice and stuff like that. So do you think that the sort of the stuff in there was so solely his own sort of ritualistic um, design or was he getting pieces going back in antiquity and designing his own system of magic? Well, certainly Crowley's system of magic is very heavily based on that, the, what he learned in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He, he spent no, a bit was, of time. Yeah kind of dressing them down, saying, whoa, you know, my uh, the, my initiation, the big secret they gave me was the Hebrew alphabet. But yeah. that, that really is the key to the system, you know, and, and Crowley <laughs> built on the system. And there would be no, you know, this, this magical system of Crowley would not exist without the Golden Dawn. I mean, he certainly, mm. you know, again, took it in, in, a, in different directions from the Golden Dawn, but it's, mm it was a huge debt to that and the, this this whole idea of correspondences that you know that colors and planets and hebrew letters mm. and material cards and all these things can kind of line up in this big sort of you know table yeah um is you know perhaps the most important thing he took from the golden dawn and built upon um and Crowley was also very well read i mean if you if you look in the reading lists for some, something like Magic and Theory and Practice. He has these books recommended for students. And he he is recommending, you know, books on philosophy, mathematics, mm. or, you know, anthropology. And a lot of what he's mm. referring students to are the ideas that were pretty cutting edge and new at his time. Mm. You know, one example is, you know, um, for Fraser's The Golden Bow, which no, yeah, is- yeah massive and, and at the time very influential book now mm. a lot of his theories have been kind of I don't know, disputed and and are kind of dated mm. by modern archaeological standards but that was you know cutting edge stuff at the time the crowley was reading mm. it and there's there's you know, value in going back and reading this stuff um in order to understand where crowley's head was at when you know he wrote some mm. of his like golden twigs fiction or something like that or even his yeah you know, idea thinking about the 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 cycle of the year and the 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 celebration of the god that dies and is reborn you know in the spring mm. um mm. 
So whether it's good archaeology or not, it tells you where Crowley's thinking was coming from. But I think, mm. you know, if someone was trying to keep up with the spirit of what Crowley was doing, one would be reading the cutting edge in archaeology and religious studies of today and not of a century ago. Yeah. What, what, what I find fascinating, I, you know, I've, I've had a sort of background in sort of magic and witchcraft over the years and various things, hermetics, Kabbalah and all sorts of different stuff, Martinism. And um, I think a lot of people don't know. I've got quite a few friends that are pagans and witches. And one of my friends the other day was speaking to me about um, Gerald Gardner, who obviously is sort of regarded as the father of modern witchcraft. But that's not entirely true, is it? If, if you read back through the book about the meetings they had, they met four times, didn't they? You said in the book. And they met the first time, I think, on the 1st of May. And I think that you, you sort of insinuated that Crowley, I know there's been a bit of debate about this over the years, that Crowley wrote perhaps some of the rituals in, in today's modern, what's now considered gardeners, which Carl came back hundreds of years, Crowley wrote some of the stuff in it. Yeah, I think I think that's something I could I can I'd like to clarify is that Crowley yeah. certainly did meet. This was in like the last year of Crowley's life when he was 72 yeah. years old and he was again he was he was approaching the end of his days. Um, you know, mm. he was not in good health. Um, and there were just a number of people who were coming to visit Crowley at this time, kind of knowing that, you know, this is their last chance to get to know him. And um, Gerald Gardner was, came to Crowley and was interested in, in OTO. And Crowley gave him a charter to operate a camp of OTO, mm. which it turns out he never used. You know, he, so he had this authority. Mm. It's just, it, it never quite... Uh, got off the ground. And yeah. um, after Crowley died, in fact, there was some question as to who was in charge, you know, of, of yeah. OTO mm. in England. And for a moment, you know, people knowing about this charter to Gerald Gardner checked with him and he was like, oh, no, it's not me. I, I like I said, I never used that charter, but mm. uh, the charter still exists. It's um, in, in, you know, private hands today. Um, Is it? Mm. But, um, and then it's certainly clear that when Gardner put together his book of shadows, he was borrowing material, you know, cutting and pasting essentially, uh, or paraphrasing yeah. from other sources. And, and yeah. that's an, it's a long-standing tradition. If you look at the Golden Dawn rituals, they are quoting from, you know, the Greek mysteries, the Chaldean oracles, and so on. And you know, Crowley likes quoting from his favorite poets. You know, if someone else has said something better, then you could mm. possibly write, why reinvent the wheel? And Gardner, mm. following that same tradition, was, you know, cribbing portions from Crowley's written works, including his Gnostic mm. Mass mm. and some of, his, mm. some of his essays, as well as, you know, things like Leland's, you know, Radio, the Gospel of the Witches, and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Certainly, Gardner's thinking and rituals owed a debt to Crowley, but uh, yeah. Marine Valiente, in her book, The Rebirth of Witchcraft, oh, talks yeah. about yeah. how, you know, she came into Gardner's circle and said, you know, you kind of need to put this in your own words and kind of, you yeah. know, uh, erase the serial numbers a bit, you know, make make the, the who you're borrowing from a little less obvious and make it something uniquely yours. Yeah. And so yeah. the rituals were a little uh, revised from that. Um, just thought the thing that I think that's kind of funny, and I think this is this perhaps the source of um, this this myth again that Crowley wrote, you know, 
gardener's rituals, which he, he didn't. But um, in, in witchcraft today, um, Gardner has this one passage in his book that talks about, you know, people have you know, accused me of having make, made up the whole witch cult thing, which I certainly have mm. not, you know, because Gardner was kind of presenting this as this sort of mm. hereditary thing that he came into. But then he kind of says, mm. oh, the only person I've ever met who possibly could have is Aleister Crowley. <laughs> and, and some people go, aha, but uh, you know, I, think uh-huh. that's, I think more than an admission of guilt, I think that's just more of an homage to someone that was you know, influential. Yeah. To yeah. So yes, there's definitely a Crowley-Gardner connection, but you know, Gardner created his own rituals borrowing you know, from- Borrowed, yeah, yeah, I think there's a little lineage that went through. Yeah, until you know, again, the the stuff got kind of revised and uh, you know the wording modified over different iterations. It's interesting you mentioned Dory Valiente because I, I actually met her. I met her. Oh, oh I can't remember now. I, many years ago, I, I I used to live down on the south coast of England near Brighton, where she lived, and I I was actually attending a psychic fair. Back in those days, I used to sell um, tarot cards and crystal balls, basically, <laughs> and she came onto my stall. And I didn't recognise her first of all. So I looked at this woman and she said, I got chatting to her. And we just started chatting, like I'm talking to you now. We started talking about witchcraft and stuff like that. And what was interesting, uh, again, a lot of people probably don't know this, was that she was an initiated Martinist in the Martinist order. Yeah. And because I was in it myself in the time. And that's how I know, because she's on the Martinist. And I said, oh, are you really? I thought you, I thought you were a pagan. She said, no, I was initiated into the Martinist order. Yeah, and I don't think many people know that. They just associate her purely with witchcraft until she had this obviously this ritualistic side to her that she didn't really talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's that's kind of funny because you know when I when I look back at these these organizations, it's like you know, William Wynn Westcott, you know, he was he was yeah. a Mason, he was he was you know the Supreme Magus of the Sagittarius of he was the head of the Golden Dawn mm. and he knew all these other people and you know i've expressed just some some fascination and amazement at how you know this 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 web of who knew who back then and you know i had some say to me yeah but look at your own you know address book you know who's in there you know it's just it's yeah exactly the occult is a small world and we all kind of know each other and we're moving the same circles it does seem that way it does seem that way um that's great yeah, no, it's great. Um, one of the things I found as well interesting, again, in the book, uh, I'm not sure what page it was on, but you said in the book that when he was preparing um, for the book of the sacred magic of Abramelin, he was taught astral projection in two months and he had 18 visions. And in one of them, he encountered his own dark persona. So would you, would you class that as his, um, his own dweller on the threshold in the book by, uh, was it, uh, what's the guy's name, he wrote it, um, Guardian on the Threshold, Zuella Button, Zuella Button, I can't remember the guy's name, I've got it somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. No, I've got so many books, I've got so many titles, I can't remember yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the interesting things about Crowley is that his opinions and ideas about things evolve over time. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard to like say this is what Crowley thought because like any of us, you know, we, we, you know, in our younger years, we might think one way and as we gain experience, you know, we change. But at the time that Crowley was doing that abnormal operation, 
his view of kind of the traditional magical books, the grimoires, like you know, the, the Goetia or the Key of Solomon, mm. is that you know, the, the, the demons or the entities talked about in these books, again, whether angels or demons, um, mm. did not really have an objective existence, but were actually um, projections of your own psyche. And that, yeah. um, that by summoning these entities, you're actually confronting and, I don't know, um, uh, there's a into reintegrating basically into your psyche these these shadow parts you know i mean it's i, mm. I use kind of like this, this jungian freudian stuff because some of this actually predates yeah. them but it's that kind of idea that you know the yeah the, the, these magical workings are for you to confront parts of yourself that you'd rather not look at and that by by reclaiming, I, mean, I guess in a way it's kind of like you know we're on a you know Kabbalah, you know it's like you know reclaiming yeah. the shards of broken vessels, you know you're kind of doing yeah, exactly that with yeah um, exactly. Yeah, I think Crowley later came to believe you know believe in the the existence of beings that were external to him that were possessed of knowledge um, that he did not possess. Mm. But uh, you know at that stage, you know his you know he had this essay you know on the the initiated interpretation of ceremonial magic where he very much. Mm approaches it from this psychological sort of standpoint. And that kind of coincides with the time he was doing the Avermellon operation. So yes, in a way, um, that is, you know, at least how he was interpreting things at that time. Yeah, but if I recall, he, he, he did those at uh, Boleskine House, wasn't it? In Scotland, wasn't it? The, Correct. Yeah, that was, that was Boleskine or Boleskine. Yeah, that obviously burnt down now. It's sort of burnt, it had a fire. Um, <laughs> Something we spoke about in correspondence, I was just it's in as well, and someone's asked me again, it's about Lamb. Now, obviously, the, the this the famous drawing that that you, you know, I'm not sure is it in your book? I can't remember. It's in your book or not actually the drawing a lamb. Is it in there? I can't I, recall off my head. <laughs> I don't recall very I added like no. one of the fun things with the second edition was that I was able to add illustrations. Yeah. I'm going kind of crazy and adding like a hundred, hundred and fifty photos. Yeah. So I don't recall. I, I, I don't know that I would have put that in there. I, I tend to lean more toward photographs of people that Crowley knew or yeah. yeah, I know this is, you know, nowadays that there's a lot of this association um, in this sort of, I know we're talking about sort of magic here, but in the sort of, the sort of realms of u, u, ufology and a lot of people sort of had this association with what they call grey aliens with the land character saying they look very similar. And I know we discussed this and you sent me some stuff. Um, can you go into that a little bit? About that, it's quite a, it's quite lengthy. What you sent me, I can't really remember off my head what it was. It's quite a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know the it's it's good to talk about first. I think the where this this whole cult of Lam idea came from. Yeah, where it came from exactly. It, it was and and how this happened was that in the 1940s again. So this is when Crowley's in his 60s, later in his years, he had hired. Mm. Um, or taken on as a secretary, a, a man by the name of Kenneth Grant, who was again oh, yeah, young at yeah. that time, and he, he, you know, Kenneth Grant was a very serious and ardent student, but circumstances owing to you know the war and you know, the Blitz and Crowley needing to live kind of a far outside of the city, um, the that secretarial position didn't quite work out, but Crowley wound up gifting Kenneth Grant with one of his paintings or drawings. And mm. 
that was this this picture that originally appeared in one of his Equinox books back in um, 1913. Mm -hmm. And it accompanied H.P. Blavatsky's The Voice of the Silence, which he reprinted yeah. with a commentary. And in that book, this was presented as um, the, the, uh, the figure in this book had a caption accompanying it, describing it as, you know, Lam coming from the Tibetan word meaning the path or the way. And that this and that this figure ostensibly represented some sort of a a lama or a ascended master. Um, some people have argued that it's actually kind of an idealized self-portrait in a way. And mm. if you look at some of you know Crowley's artwork, and particularly some of his other idealized self-portraits, um, they don't really resemble him necessarily or the no, no. <laughs> um, but you know, this this gift, you know, to, to Kenneth Grant was. Um, very special to him. And so he kind of you know, naturally imbued a great deal of significance to this gift. And Kenneth Grant was a, a person who kind of came to the idea or the thinking that um, in some ways, the, the idea of Crowley's philosophy of Thelema and the dawning of this new age, in some mm. ways, you know, presaged the atomic age and that the detonation mm. of the atomic bombs somehow made access to other dimensions um, of, yeah. Yeah. you know, which is where these entities are clearly communicated with, are uh, more accessible, mm. and this somehow accounted for the explosion of UFO sightings with, you know, Kenneth Arnold mm. and you know, Roswell and all that kind of stuff that followed. Mm. So mm. Kenneth Grant kind of drew this, you know, line from. You know this this drawing to the atomic bomb to ufos to you know mm. this occultism and um and because of this kind of resemblance to the gray aliens um you know kind of grant and people of of, of you know were following his footsteps have just kind of mm. developed this sort of uh, mysticism of you know meditating on on the image of lam and you know kind of falling you know like astral projecting falling into his eyes or whatever mm. Obtaining mm -hmm. vision, um, and you know, far be it for me to criticize anyone's you know spiritual or magical practices. Um, you know, any mm -hmm. any belief you know can be reduced to the ridiculous, and I have no desire to do that. Um, but at the same time, no. um, I think there's there's a you know, and again, I, and I find Kenneth Grant to also be a very imaginative writer who kind of managed to pull. You know his, his interpretation of magic you know in, into a very different and innovative direction but i also think mm. there's some some hazard in trying to look at the past through our modern eyes you know crowley mm. you know pre you know existed prior to the days of the gray alien he, he had no mm. concept of this um you know no. sure there were the victorian airships um, and those mm. sightings, really paid no mind to that, as far as I can tell. I mean, he's ne he never made mention of these things in his lifetime. And I, I, I guess I'm kind of reminded of, um, there's, there's a meme I've seen going around on social media of, of a, I don't know, it's, a, it's an ancient bas-relief sort of uh, sculpture or something, and it shows two people. I think it's it's Greek in origin, but I could be mistaken. It's two people standing inside yeah. a, a a a rectangular shaped thing with 
circles and drawings and loops and so on. And the caption says, this proves that the ancient Greeks developed the modern um, you know, <laughs> modular synthesizer. You know, because yeah, I was thinking okay. <laughs> with modern eyes, see a modular synthesizer. That is clearly not what they were you know, sculpting. No, obviously not, no. <laughs> and, and, and I think we, we see some of the same things when folks like, you know, um, Mandanakin and so on kind of look back ancient Assyrian sculptures and say, oh, look, oh, yeah, yeah, being yeah. In, the, in the sky, that's clearly an ancient astronaut, you know. Um, yeah. When, and, and, and that's, again, I think, I think that's kind of a result of seeing the ancient world through modern eyes. And, mm. and I think to an extent, you know, there's, there's different ways of seeing that Lam painting um, or drawing by Crowley. And, yeah. You know, the, the cult of Lam and, and, and that is just one way of approaching. Something developed around that. What, what's, yeah. what's, obviously, you know, obviously you've done a lot of research over the years and obviously there's, lo there's lots of sort of facts coming to light now for yourself and various other sort of researchers that have been sort of documented through letters and stuff like this that come into light what what's the sort of the the, the, the biggest myth that you that really annoys you basically about it you know <laughs> oh, there's one there's so many um you know i think one of the one of the uh, the uh, aside from the wickedest man in the world thing which we we dismissed mm. um are you not actually let me let me I think I'll, I'll go with that because I was going to talk about his the, the drug addiction myth, but um, or or exaggeration mm. perhaps is a better word for it. Mm. But um, one of the things that's very persistent is that Crowley liked all publicity, even bad publicity. Yeah, and, yeah. and that he somehow that the idea that he somehow embraced these titles like the wickedest man in the world or a man we'd like to hang, um, which is another one that came from John Bull, I think. Um, mm, oh, yeah, and, yeah. And um, that's not just simply not true. I mean, Crowley, you know, when these when these newspaper headlines attacking him came out in the 1920s, you know, he was living living in Italy and he was, you know, he was, he was at Chefalu and he was basically penniless. He was kind of scrounging together what he could mm. just to kind of pay the rent and, and you know, and keep food on the table. And when these um, articles came out, um, he, he was very upset and felt like he was not in a position to go back to London and defend himself because he didn't have the money to travel, let alone to no. retain over here. Um, but once he finally made his way back to London, you know, in 1930, um, you know, he wasted no time in trying to sue people who said things that he disapproved of. Um, you know, there's mm. a story of a bookseller who was uh, selling a copy of Diary of a Drug Fiend that said, you know, this, mm. this book was withdrawn, you know, because it was so scandalous. Mm. And that wasn't really the truth. I mean, what happened was, you know, the book came out, again, the, the usual suspects, John Bull and so on, um, attacked mm. the book, the Sunday Express, you know, those sorts of papers. Um, and the, the publisher just let the print run sell out and they never bothered to reprint mm. it. So the book was never suppressed. So Crowley mm. sued this poor bookseller, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he got damages. Um, he tried to sue one of his former students, Nina Hamnett, you know, the, the artist and sculptress um, who, who basically said in one of her books that when Crowley was in Italy, the locals suspected that he practiced black magic and he took exception mm. to that. And sued her and, and 
you know, kind of the famous, you know, black magic libel case, you know, against Constable mm. Company. Yeah. And, and various other, Ethel Manon uh, did some, said something similar in Confessions and Impressions, and he tried to sue her. And, and so he, he very much was, you know, uh, concerned about the, 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 this legend, this noxious legend surrounding mm. himself. He actually blamed that for his inability to sell books and make a living as a writer. Because he, he mm. did kind of on the heels of these um, court cases, most of which he lost. Um, mm. But he wound up in bankruptcy you know, before the receiver. And, you know, essentially he said, you know, that's just the, the public perception of him and these attacks in the press have made it impossible for him to make a living. And that's why he's he, he was bankrupt. Um, mm. and, and when he signed a contract with uh, Mandrake Press, to mm. put out his works, his confessions and his novel Moonchild and some things like that. Yeah. Um, they actually put out this book called The Legend of Alistair Crowley that tried to document not only his, his positive reviews, but to also document this sort of unprecedented and unparalleled sort of attack in the press mm. that Crowley mm. went to, to, to try to, you know, again, to, to defend him from this sort of reputation. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's that's the one I'd pick. If anything, it's that Crowley did not enjoy his notoriety. Um, he didn't enjoy his notoriety. Particular, particularly the idea of black magic or black magician. That was something that yeah. he particularly disliked. He did not see himself as that at all. No. Do you do you think you know if if he if, he's, if he was alive today and he had he, he had a legacy, do you think he'd want to be known as a an amazing um, an occultist or an amazing mountaineer. Because obviously, he, I think he, did he not? Uh, does he not still um, have a world record for mountaineering or something? I remember somewhere. Um, several. I mean, I, I they they yeah. by now have been surpassed because people have access to much better equipment and mm. and tech. You know, again, people's techniques and, and technology. And stuff. Yeah, not even, not, and not even that, because I don't, again, I don't want to diminish the, the accomplishments of modern climbers, mm. but they have the benefit of the experience of previous climbers. You know, when, when Crowley mm. was going up, you know, K2, no one had climbed that yeah. before. They were trying to no. figure out what is the best way up the mountain. Um, you know, mm. the, the, the ways up that mountain are pretty well known. It's still a dangerous mountain, but, you know, again, mm. people like, People are able to take oxygen with them. People have you know, better climbing gear and the best mm, routes mm. are generally understood at this point, but that wasn't the case mm. in Crowley's time. Um, so, but, but, but it's for that reason that he, he did have uh, several you know, records that stood for you know, his K2 record. And that's just, not just his, it's his and, and the team he was with. I mean, that record mm. for K2 stood for about 50 years before- Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So um, he was. Yeah, he was. He and, and his colleagues were quite accomplished in that regard. And I think that's yeah. again. I think that's one of the interesting things about Crowley is that he's he's so multifaceted. You know, he's not just one thing. He's not just you know, cultist, no, exactly. Or a, poet he, he, or, or a mountain climber. It's just that he lived all these lives at once. To me, makes him yeah. a fascinating figure. Whether you think he's a is a bad guy or a good guy? He is. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. This is what I've always found. It's, yeah, I, I I found the same thing. Obviously, I I was very attracted as a kid, like I think you do. You, 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 I think people that sort of get attracted to occultism tend to get attracted to the darker side, 
because it's more interesting. You <laughs> usually it's yeah. just more it's just more interesting. I find it more interesting, and then you make a choice. You go down a various pathway. And I suppose initially for me, I found it quite interesting until I read more about him and understood him more. You know, and now I learnt about his life. About you know, it wasn't just magic. There's all this. How how can this one man do all this stuff in this life? You know, it's like incredible. The stuff yeah. he did, I think, you know, and I was trying to think of somebody today. I think who is who is like that today? Is there anybody? I can't think of anybody. You know, we've got an occult side too, then they had all these other sort of accomplishments and interests that in sort of in the in the world we live in, you know, you go back through history, you had people like um who was there? There was obviously Blavatsky, you know, a sort of leading like you had Dion Fortune, Nanny Besson, um Saint Martin, Libus Lefi and Crowley. Who who who's replaced them? Who who is it now? Is there anybody now? Yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind of hard because you're really kind of talking about, um, you know, kind of you know who are the modern Renaissance people, you know. Yeah. And I guess circling back to kind of where we started, you know, with with Jack Parsons, I, at least I believe this is Jack Parsons, but uh, there's there's a letter yeah. that Crowley wrote. Um, it's either Parsons or W. T. Smith. I, I anyway, but he he wrote this letter to one of his uh, California. Um, students and you know he says you know bear in mind that everything i say comes from a very different perspective than yours and in, in a way it sounds you know it, it reads kind of arrogant but at the same time i think it it gives it gave me a lot of insight into into where crowley was coming from because you know he goes on to say you know have you you know traveled to the remotest parts of the world have you walked in places mm. where no human has ever set foot you know have you mm. conversed with you know the the native people of different countries about their faith and their religious practices have you seen the great works of art the great monuments you know and and i think about just all the people that were in crowley's circle i mean that yeah, he he knew i mean it's it's again it's it's equally mind-boggling but you know mm. his, his his comment to to the students is basically saying that just bear in mind that everything i say is from a perspective of having had all those experiences you know mm. um, while on the one hand it sounds like he's kind of lording it over this this poor person on the other hand it is kind of acknowledging that he's lived a life very different from most people and therefore his point of view mm. is going to be you know, very, you know, influenced by that and very different from, you know, the average person mm. on the street who lives one lifetime at a time. You know, Crowley lived a dozen. Yeah, exactly. Years. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, what, what, what you know, um, what, what do you think his, what would you say his greatest achievement was? I, I think that he is someone who was ahead of his time. Oh, I mean, in, in many ways of his time, because he was reacting yeah. against the things of his time. But at the same time, the ideas and um, I know, the philosophies that he espoused were not quite ready for people to embrace in large numbers. But he, you know, kind of saw the future, I think, and that um, mm. his greatest accomplishment then would be to have laid out this, this life, this philosophy, this 
way, this path of self-discovery through the, the magic that he, he talks about that maybe was not quite so popular at the time that he was alive, but mm. was something that would later be embraced by later mm. generations, you know, starting, you know, particularly in the late 60s, but then it's just, it's snowballed from there. Um, and mm. you know, to, to a point where today where, you know, there, there are, you know, academics and scholars who, you know, make a serious study of his life and his influence on popular yeah. culture. Um, yeah. So I think that would, in my mind, would be his greatest accomplishment to uh, create this legacy that has only become more relevant as time goes on. Yeah. Do, do, do you think he was a magician in the true sense of the word, as we understand the word magician? Or do you think he was just a very good at uh, putting himself out there? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's a famous story, isn't there? The famous story, you have to correct me on this, where he was, I'm not sure where he was walking, in New York or London, and he was walking beside somebody and he, and he bent his leg and they fell over. You probably know more about this than I do. Do you, do you think that's just a story? Or do you think he had that ability to, you know, he had a power he could project into someone's subconscious or whatever? Well, that's that story I, I I can neither confirm nor deny. I mean, that story comes to <laughs> us through William Seabrook, you know, the who was a friend of Crowley's and a travel writer, and he also wrote quite a lot on, you know, occultism and so on. Uh, Seabrook also uh, had a tendency to kind of uh, exaggerate to make the stories better. So who knows yeah. uh, as far as who that knows? story goes. But um, I think, the idea of what is a magician is worth asking. And I don't think Crowley ever saw magic as being a way to obtain you know, miraculous powers that in no. Crowley's mind and those of his colleagues like in the Golden Dawn and so on were, in, were involved in magic as a process of again kind of following that old dictum of you know getting you know know thyself and mm. and not and 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 to become i don't know to, to realize you know to, to become self-actualized and aware and to become yeah. the best version of you that you can you know the yeah. idea that you know you have this higher self and that the and 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 again the motto perdurabo that what is it that you aspire to and that the path of magic is about becoming that thing that you aspire to um, um, I, I think of, um, you know, my, my friend and, and the, the modern you know, cult writer, Juan Duquette, who says that oh, yeah. Yeah, the goal of magic is not to make us superhuman, but is to make us extra human. And mm. that's nice. And yeah, and then Crowley's, you know, magical system, the AA, you know, he kind of talks about how, you know, this, this path, um, that, that you follow, um, you know, doesn't end with you kind of, you know, doing the abramelin working and obtaining the knowledge mm. and conversation of your holy guardian angel. It becomes a matter mm. of refining that process. And once mm. you have kind of, you know, I, I hate to say the word perfecting, that's not quite the right word, but once you have kind of realized or kind of attained to that ideal version of yourself, you know, you then have a you know, responsibility to the universe around you to help mm. other people along that path yeah. and to and to bring, you know, help with the evolution, uh, you know, spiritual evolution of the of the whole world. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. So it's exactly. kind of like this bootstrapping sort of thing. So in that sense, yeah. yes, I do believe Crowley was absolutely a magician. 
Yeah, I, I suppose really, I mean, really the fact, you know, that we're still talking about him today, his magic works because he's created these discussions Perfect. and books and he, he, it's just through the words, you know, and you know, words are magic at the end of the day, aren't they? They are power. And, it, and it's actually created that, you know, it's, I mean, you know, it's a wonderful book. And I'll just say one more time here. I'll just say to anybody, you know, if you want to really read a really in-depth autobiography by Richard, um, which I'm guessing you can get on all main booksellers and Amazon and yeah, your favourite bookstore. Your favourite bookstore. Have you, have you got a website, Richard, at all that people can go on to? Um, I do. It is uh, Kaczynski with a hyphen um, dot com. Um, so a hyphen between Richard and Kaczynski. And um, yeah, that has information about my other books and articles and things like that. And it also has um, something that people might find interesting. I have a page called Foth Sightings, which okay. uh, collects places in popular culture that the Crowley and Harris Thoth Tarot has turned up. So everywhere from okay. the old night gallery TV shows of the 1970s to the yeah. latest is, you know, the, the Netflix series Katla. Um, there's a fortune teller right. using the Thoth Tarot. So it's just kind of um, capturing and, and documenting just all, all the ways in which oh, that no, Thoth has deepened into uh, pop culture. And again, it's another example of how he has main, you know, continued to be relevant in this day and age. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to add at all about Crowley or any sort of ending remarks or are you quite happy? Yeah, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation here and for- Oh your... no, thank you. For talk, thank you for talking. Yeah, I mean, I really, really do appreciate it. I mean, I could, talk, I, I could ask you many, many questions because, because be all day on this, but I'm, I'm, I appreciate the time difference. And I appreciate an hour's gone already. You know, there's so much to cover, but I really do appreciate it. Um, and I say, you know, um, Richard, thank you very much for the time. It's been fantastic. I'd love to chat to you again sometime, maybe, if the, if the third book comes out or another book comes out. It'd be brilliant. Absolutely. Well, the an edition of Crowley's Sort of Song, uh, with which I've edited and annotated, should be coming out later this year. So there will definitely be more books. Wow. Brilliant. That's great. Okay.